Thanks for joining us for another Teaching American History webinar archive. It's September 25th, 2019, and our Documents in Detail webinar for today is about Alexander Hamilton's Federalist One. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is John Moser. I'm Professor of History and Chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government Program at Ashland University. And I want to welcome you to another edition of Documents in Detail, Teaching American History's webinar series in which we bring together thoughtful scholars to have a conversation about historically important documents. We encourage all of you joining us today to participate in that conversation by submitting questions via the chat box, which you'll find in the lower right-hand corner of your screen. We will try to get as many, uh, get to as many of your questions as possible. Within the next week, you will receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation in tonight's webinar, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from the program. The speeches, letters, and other writings that we're using for this year's webinars are all drawn from our book, 50 Core American Documents, uh, compiled by, uh, by Chris Burkett. Uh, they are also available at the Ashbrook Center's voluminous document database located at TAH.org. The subject of today's program is Alexander Hamilton, writing under the pseudonym of Publius, uh, Federalist Number 1. To help discuss it, we have Dr. Jeremy Bailey, Professor of Political Science at the University of Houston, and Dr. John Dynan, Professor of Politics at Wake Forest University. Jeremy, John, good to have you with us this evening. Good to be here. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks. Uh, let's start out with uh, simply by, uh, let me start out by asking, what's so important about this that it, that it gets included in uh, 50 core documents in U.S. history? I'll start off. I think probably the line from Federalist One that's the most quoted, that's the most one that people are going to remember, is the line in the opening part of it to see whether or not a government can be formed based on reflection and choice or versus accident and force. That's oftentimes when people have occasion to go to Federalist One, they highlight it for that reason. And in part because it really does set up a very important question. The Federalists are saying, well, this, is, this is really a first time that someone will, really would have a chance for a nation that way, a whole, whole country to decide not, uh, it's, 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 it's not because someone's conquered someone else. It's not because there's kind of a hereditary transfer of power. We have it in our power to decide how we want to set up our governing institutions. And so it's not just important just for what we're doing here, but others around the world will be watching us to see whether or not you can actually kind of work through principles and reason your way through to good governance. That stands out to me as one of the real uh, treats of rereading Federalist One. Jeremy? Yeah, I'm not sure I can add to that. Uh, that's pretty good. Um, the, other, the other famous part of the first paragraph, uh, of course, is the claim that this is an empire, uh, which is uh, maybe um, uh, somewhat less interesting, but, but, it's, but it's nonetheless startling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that that is something that that kind of jumped off the page at me. The, the fate of an empire is, is he suggests, is, is in the balance here. Why use that? Why use that term? 
Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, one, one, one explanation is, look, it, it's Hamilton, and uh, uh, Hamilton's um, got big plans. And um, one could even, you know, if, 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 you, if you think Hamilton is not um, 100% small R Republican in his soul, uh, then, then maybe, maybe uh, you know, this word empire uh, ring, rings that bell for you. You know, Jefferson later talks about an empire of liberty, of course. Um, that's not what Hamilton says necessarily, but, but it, it's, it's nonetheless, you know, notable. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting because the philosophic weight attached to it, but it's also interesting because it's a, this uh, country is going to have some sort of uh, importance in the context of international relations at the very minimum, it, it appears. Um, let's take a step back and talk about the the context. Uh, perhaps it's it maybe obvious from the text, but uh, indulge us a little and, and and tell tell us about the situation that prevailed when uh, when Hamilton sat down to write this. Well, I mean, the, the immediate context is the Constitution has now been presented for ratification, and it's been presented for some some states will have. Uh, uh, have begun to kind of move forward on on this ratification, but you've got to get at least nine states before you're kind of going to make a go of it in that way. And you've got some key states such as New York and Virginia that will be in the balance to see whether they actually ratify the new constitution. And so that's the immediate context. You're engaged in persuasion, following on this idea of we're going to decide whether government can be formed based on reflection and choice. The very idea is we're not going to just force you to to adopt this constitution, although we're, there were some incidents in the Pennsylvania ratifying convention where they actually some anti-federalist critics left the room and they actually kind of brought them back in the room. So, but uh, accepting that for the most part, we're engaged in persuasion and not forcing people to, to, to sign on to this. And so this is the first of 85 papers that are gonna try to engage in persuading people. You might have skepticism about this. You might even have full-throated opposition and Federalist One acknowledges the skepticism. It acknowledges the full-throated opposition. And it says, here's our plan for how we're going to persuade you in, 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 over, over the series of, of papers. So in that sense, it, 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 it telegraphs the rest of the Federalist papers. And that's another reason why it might be included you know, for teaching purposes, not only for some of the things that we've started off talking about, the reference to an empire, reference to can we form government based on reflection choice but if you really want to get a snapshot of a preview of here's what's going to follow federalist one sets that out hmm. jeremy anything to add to yeah that? yeah um I, I i agree with all that one one <laughs> one uh, bit of context i would add would be in the context of um hamilton himself and so um hamilton of course was one of three new york delegates at the convention uh, because they're voting by state delegation, he's outvoted. Um, and so after giving a couple speeches, he sees that his uh, time is not um, being being spent all that well at the convention. So he goes back to New York to um, prepare uh, the, the strategy for ratification in New York. And of course, he returns back to the convention to sign, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, I, the, the the immediate context that I would I would underline is that if you're a betting man. New York looks like a no vote. Uh, as Hamilton knows, um, the, the, the anti-federalists are probably going to be their strongest in the New York ratifying convention. Um, and uh, to, to win New York is, is important for this, for, for, this, for this new government. And uh, this is 
you know, step one of things plan to do that. What was it about New York that made that such a hotbed of anti-federalism? Um, um, I'm going to get out of my depth here potentially, but, but what would two, two things immediately be one would is, is that the, um, New York politics had a, a divide between urban and rural, uh, and the rural anti-federalist uh, faction um, had had been sort of uh, tooled up since since at least the, the debates over the New York uh, Constitution uh, in, in 1777. Um, and uh, secondly, is that not only are they good in terms of numbers, but they're good in terms of talent. Um, Lincoln Smith, in particular, is probably. Probably, if not the best anti-federalist, he's 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 among the best. Uh, Michael Zucker's made the case that he's either uh, Brutus or federal farmer, but not both. Uh, and, and historians have long uh, assumed that that or argued that federal farmer and Brutus are the two best anti-federalists. And so, in in, in the in the person of Langton Smith, you have a, a serious um, uh, mind and a serious uh, political talent that you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. John, anything to add to that? Well, I was just going to take that opportunity since we're talking about who are the opponents and why in some states it's going to be particularly difficult to point us to some of the relevant text in Federalist One, where we're about three paragraphs into the document and Hamilton starts introducing, he says, look, it's going to be a tough, uh, tough argument going on. And he starts introducing uh, some of the reasons why there might be some opposition. And he says, well, on the one hand, he says there are really three kind of sets of opponents that he wants to introduce that he says, uh, he says, be wary of these folks. One hand, he says, there are going to be some critics of the proposed Constitution who are in power in state legislators or in state governments, and they're going to be losing power to some degree under the new U.S. Constitution. So watch out, he says, for some people who might be arguing against this document because for their own self-interest, he says. And then he second, he says, there's a group of people he says, and this is a, introduces a, a theme that comes out throughout Federalist One and actually throughout the Federalist Papers. He says there's some people who see fame to be gained in exciting the people and actually uh, kind of um, uh, really appealing to the passions of the people and trying to scare them almost into kind of thinking that their liberties might be at, at, at risk. And he says they might be doing this not just because they actually believe that, but because that's a way to fame and 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 renown. And then there's this third group of critics that he says, and this introduces a very interesting theme that they really focus on in the early Federalist Papers. He says there's going to be some people who say if we defeat the U.S. Constitution, the next alternative will be multiple confederacies. The leading possibility is you might separate into three confederacies, maybe a northern, a middle group of states, and, and the southern states. He said, you might have some people out there that are arguing against this document because they envision themselves as in power in one of these new multiple confederacies. Very interesting to kind of see the way that Hamilton says, these are some of the critics. He says, there's going to be some other folks that we just disagree. He says, watch out for those folks in particular. I find it interesting that in the midst of really a broadside against anyone who would dare criticize the Constitution, he suddenly becomes magnanimous. (laughs) Andrew will oblige us to admit that even such men may be actuated by upright intentions. And it cannot be doubted that much of the opposition, which has already shown itself, or that may hereafter make its appearance, will spring from sources blameless, at least, if not if not respectable. The honest errors of minds led astray by preconceived jealousies and fears. What do you think is going on here that he suddenly 
uh, suddenly decides to back off. I mean, we all know that Hamilton could be absolutely scathing when he wanted to, but but here he seems to want to come off at least for this section like a nice guy. What what's happening here? Yeah, so I don't. I, I actually I, I was thinking a, a good bit about this on Monday and and one of my one of my classes, um, and and I don't I don't buy his backing off, um, and and there there are two. For the two other documents, and then then something inside the, this document itself. Um, one is um, the um, he, Hamilton writes a memo, I think, to himself, more or less right after the convention, in which he classifies the opponents of the Constitution and classifies the supporters of the Constitution. The supporters include all these great guys. They also include creditors. They also include leading men of property, and then the opponents he he calls inconsiderable men with considerable office as opposed to considerable men with no office and then considerable men uh, with some office. And then he gives the, 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 the explanation. They're exactly what John just explained. Uh, and that is that there are three kinds of people out there, but, um, but he doesn't call them inconsiderable. And in, in the Federalist one, he just says uh, a certain class. The, the other document to compare it to is James Madison's Federalist 37 which I see as um, a companion piece. It starts volume two of the Federalist, if you will. Um, the first half of the Federalist talks about the desired energy of the Constitution. The second half talks about the Republican credentials of the Constitution. And uh, 37 starts a long string written by Madison. And so 37 read as uh, a kind of a, a, a beginning or a reset. And it also reads by talking about the kinds of supporters and opponents. You'll notice that Madison's is much more uh, genuinely open to uh, uh, disagreement or to honest disagreement, whereas Hamilton's is not. And so to answer your question, if you, if you look at the very next paragraph, he describes in advance what the conversations are going to look like. And so by putting the conversations in the mouths of people in advance, He's already undermined their legitimacy in, in my in my reading, but I've, I've said a lot. I'll, I'll, I'll stop. That's interesting, John. You have anything to add to that? Well, I was just going to say I'm glad that Hamilton did do the on the one hand, on the other hand, that he pulled back from 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 his initial kind of um, saying, "Look, you can't trust these people because they're all going to be motivated by interests of some kind." Because I think when you start off your the Federalist Papers saying we're going to see if we can form a government based on reflection and choice. I take that to be a signal that, that we're open to persuasion and deliberation. And if you really want to set the stage for persuasion and deliberation, you want to at least allow for the possibility that your critics could be motivated by reason and could be persuaded by reason. So I don't have a full explanation. I think Jeremy gave some good kind of possibilities of what might have been motivating that decision. I'm glad he did pull back to some degree. Uh, we've got a couple of questions from participants. The first one I think you've already answered. Uh, was Hamilton scrambling to respond because New York was a toss-up or was it always his plan to write support of the Constitution? I think you've made it clear that that uh, the uh, uh, that this this was really because New York was New York was expected to be difficult. Um, and then uh, we've got another question from Stacy Moses uh, asking, um, did the authors of the Federalists essays write only for New York, or did they know of and plan for other states to have access to these to these persuasive arguments? They expect to have similar fights elsewhere. 
you can certainly uh, so, see. Go ahead, go ahead, Jeremy. Okay, yeah. So quickly, so 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 one of my teachers, Robert Sigliano, used to say, "The Federalist was Alexander Hamilton's idea. It was written by a New Yorker, intended to be read by New Yorkers." Um, his first recruits, uh, John Jay and William Dewar, didn't work out uh, as planned. John Jay had migraines. William Dewar was bad quality. So he recruits James Madison, who happens to be in New York uh, at the time. Um, it quickly, however, becomes circulated across other cities. Um, and as they're writing, everybody knows that they become, if you will, a set of talking points or opinion shapers in uh, urban centers uh, throughout the country. John, I was just going to add just one thing to that. So we've got New York ratifying convention is a key one. The Virginia ratifying convention that we mentioned earlier is a very key one. And both of these are are neck and neck in terms of whether the Federalists or the Anti-Federalists are going to win out. If we actually um, kind of look at the margin of votes uh, ultimately in New York and the margin of votes in Virginia, both of those are close. And so they, these are being circulated. They're particularly being circulated, or at least we know they're also being read in Virginia at that time. But you can see it's interesting. They um, when, And I'll mention this a little bit later. There's oftentimes references to various state governments and state constitutions in the course of the Federalist Papers, and that's mentioned in the end of Federalist One, where they say one of the things we're going to do in this document is compare the proposed constitution with the state constitutions. And so we know it's um, been primarily for New Yorkers because they're oftentimes very much compared to say, well, your state is already kind of doing this. We're not all that different from there with our proposed constitution. And by your state, they're meaning New York. But in the course of that, they, they take note of what's happening and throughout the 13 states. And, and so they know that they're writing for an eventual audience. It's a much broader one than one. Mm -hmm. let, me, let me provide another answer, too. Um, this, this has to do with the, uh, the calculations. The, the, the Federalist Papers changes uh, around 37, and that's in January of 1788. And what's happened in January of 1788 is all bets are off. What looked like was going to be a relatively smooth uh, affair with, with, with complications in important states uh, in um, New York and Virginia, North Carolina delays, I believe New Hampshire delays, and things get dicey. Edmund Randolph circulates his proposal for a second convention. Governor Clinton joins on that in New York in December of 1787. And I, I would say the probability goes down. And it's not until the end of January, the Massachusetts uh, breakthrough of amended amendments, not required amendments, happens. Um, and so um, there, there's a, a, a the, the urgency and the intention changes as you go stage through stage through the ratification uh, timeline. You get a good sense of that on Gordon Lloyd's very good uh, mm -hmm. uh, website that Ash, Ashbrook has up. Hmm. Um, so uh, John mentioned that Virginia was another was another battleground where the where the anti-federalists had had real strength. Uh, we talked a bit about why why the anti-federalists were strong in New York. Was, was it the same reason? Were they strong for the same reasons in uh, in Virginia, or were there different factors at play? Well, you have Mason and Henry in Virginia. Uh, Patrick Henry is pretty formidable. Uh, not to mention Edmund Randolph, who eventually goes crosses back over to, to, to the pro side. Um, but again, it's, it's um, if you read Madison's uh, notes to Washington and Jefferson, if you read Hamilton's early notes, they're counting heads in terms of serious opinion shapers. And in Virginia, it's, it's Mason, Randolph, and Henry. And in fact, Jefferson, even though he's not present, he's in, he's in France at the time, he's got 
uh, it becomes clear that he has his own reservations, although in the end he comes down on uh, in, in, in support of the Constitution. Um, let's talk about Hamilton's antecedents. Who, who inspires him on these sorts of matters? Or is he sui generis? John, you're going to take a stab first. No, let me. Let me. I, I'm not going to. Uh, I don't think I'm going to directly take that on. Give us some time to kind of uh, think if we have anything. But but let me let me talk about what, what the context, what Hamilton is reacting to in particular, along with Madison and Jay and otherwise. And that, this is this these events that have taken place from 1776 on to 1787. And so one of the things that's inspiring the Federalists, and one of the things that's inspiring the Federalist Papers is how well his governance worked under the Articles of Confederation, and how well his governance worked under these state constitutions. That is, beginning in 1776, we had states beginning to set up their own constitutions and, 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 and governing themselves to a significant degree. And one of the things that just comes throughout that, I, that I knows on, on Hamilton's mind is it hasn't always been well-governed states under what they've created. And, and, and we, this comes out they, um, they, that the early state constitutions had a very weak executive. In fact, it's, it, 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 for the most part, the legislatures would just select the executive. It's very unusual that you would actually have a popular elected governor. And then you say, well, how long are you serving? Well, it wasn't uncommon to have governors of states at that point serve for one year and then have to be kind of renewed. Or uh, then you say, well, what powers did these governors have? Well, outside of New York, where there's a council of revision that had a veto in Massachusetts that eventually gave their governor the veto, the governor had no power to veto legislation. And so we could expand on this. We could also talk essentially where was the power in these state in these states? It was in the legislative branch, kind of a weak judiciary in many cases, too. So when I start reading Federalist Number One and then read other Federalist papers, and I say, what's 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 on Hamilton's mind? Hamilton's mind is, is that we have made an initial stab at writing constitutions in 1776 for the next decade, and we can learn from that. One of the lines that I particularly want to draw out here is when Hamilton says in Federalist One, one of my main tasks here is to show that an energetic government is not inconsistent with the protection of rights. Because he, he, when he's saying that is, his inspiration is a lot of people kind of learn the lesson from kind of as we split from England as well. A key point is to kind of make sure we don't have too strong of a government or at least that's not centralized power and executive. One of Hamilton's tasks is to say, actually, we've had about a decade of learning. And I think we've learned some experiences just from our own American experience at constitution making. And I'm going to try to uh, draw some principles here and some insights there. You might not be uh, ready to hear them yet. You might not be immediately persuaded. But I think if I have the chance in over 85 papers, I think we can show you why energetic government is not something you have to be fearful of already. An energetic government might actually protect you more than you think. Hmm. Okay. Jeremy? Yeah, so the influence questions, it took, took me a second to, to, to clarify my head on, part because I just submitted a, a paper uh, to a journal uh, on uh, Hamilton's Federalist 70, which, which shows um, how Hamilton took a famous sentence from, from Federalist 70 from a, a textbook of moral philosophy that had been published in England in 1785 by a utilitarian philosopher by the name of William Paley. Um, I, I, I don't want to make too much of that. Um, what I would say is that my, my instinct is that Hamilton 
one of the cool things about Hamilton is he's not slavish in his 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 own self education, and he uh, I don't think is a philosopher that um, uh, wholly captures uh, what what he's doing. He's much more practical and, and uh, sensible in that way. And 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 you know whereas you can almost always reduce Jefferson down to Locke. I'm not sure you can you can do the same thing with Hamilton. For example, uh, Peter McNamara's great book on, on Hamilton's rejection of Adam Smith as, as, a, as an economic thinker. Um, I would say to the extent that he's influenced, it's probably likely influenced by what we might call uh, uh, sort of B-rate Tory histories written by people whose names we don't remember, uh, who are going to um, have a relatively conservative, maybe royalist interpretation of the Civil Wars um, in, in England. Uh, and likewise, uh, their histories of antiquity uh, and maybe their translations of Plutarch, et cetera, uh, that uh, are going to have a, a, a peculiar, uh, 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 um, somewhat of an anti-democratic uh, uh, air to them. But I wouldn't want to reduce Hamilton to that by any means. Sure. I mean, if you look at his, uh, his exchanges uh, during the revolution, for example, he, one would one would not expect him to be writing favorably about Whig, about, about sorry, Tory historians. Right. Uh, we've got a couple more questions from participants. Uh, John Welsh asks, uh, in this and other Federalist papers, is Hamilton reactive or proactive in his writing? That is, is he primarily writing in response to anti-Federalist critics? All right, I'll, I'll take that quickly. Almost all of the Federalist papers are best understood by figuring out which anti-Federalist critique they are addressing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's almost the easiest way to teach them. Um, so in that sense, he's reactive. <clears throat> Let's say here, with the theme of deliberation, or the theme of this is really a, a framing of how we're going to talk about this debate, or, or what the, the debate's going to look like. Hamilton's biggest problem, or the Federalist's biggest problem, is really the Edmund Randolph problem. Randolph doesn't have substantive suggestions for the Constitution. Randolph wants a second convention. And uh, his second convention is a, a sensible idea. What kind of compromise wouldn't involve a second convention? Can't good uh, intention people agree, oh, let's do this one more time, and everyone talking about it again? That's a pretty good argument. Hamilton has to show, and, the, and Publius has to show, and this goes through January, uh, has to show moderate that a second convention is a non-starter. Uh, and that's what I think helps explain the tone of Federalist One. Okay. And I would just add to that, I think that is oftentimes for teaching the Federalist papers, I, I like myself, I, I, I rarely I kind of find myself just assigning a Federalist paper. I, I oftentimes, sometimes that's, that's the way to do it, but I oftentimes set it up with an anti-Federalist paper, with a sentinel, and then uh, the response, or, or, or with the uh, Brutus, and then the response at their points. I just find in different people here, I'm sure on the, the, the chat here, have different ways that they found helpful to teach the Federalist Papers. I found that is very helpful to pair that as much as possible with an anti-Federalist so that can be, that, 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 so we can see, appreciate what they're reacting to. The one thing I would say is though, is to say that they're reactive for the most part, it's not to say that all of this is reactive. And Jeremy already pointed to some ways in which it's not just reactive, but proactive. And one way of thinking about this is you can see, for instance, in some of Madison's authored Federalist papers, that some of his 
his papers and the federal papers are already kind of drawing on notes that he made at the federal convention or papers and essays that he wrote even before the convention. So there are some points that Publius wants to get out that Hamilton or Madison have already thought through. And they say, look, this is key. So it's reactive to a great degree, but also proactive. And um, here's some points that are fundamental points I'm just going get, to get before you in an important way. Hmm. Um, John Robinson asks uh, really about the Federalist Papers overall and the relationship between Hamilton and Madison during their writing. Of course, we know that the two of them had a falling out later on. How how collaborative were they in putting this together? Did they did they uh, vet each other's work? Did they approve of what each other did one approve of what the others wrote, or, or do you see the seeds in the Federalist Papers? of some of the disputes that would break out between them later? The answer is yes and yes. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I think, I think w once uh, you have the benefit of hindsight, you can see um, some particular differences. Um, just, just to illustrate one, and that's the, the table of contents. If, if one through 36 address the question, you need a government at least as energetic. That's all Hamilton. Mm -hmm. When you get to 37 through the, uh, at, through, 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 um, uh, well, 85, but, but uh, the, the, the first part of that, especially, it's all, it's, uh, it's 37 through 62, more or less, is all Madison. And that uh, takes a different question, and that is, is this government sufficiently Republican? So just in their division of labor, in terms of the, their intellectual interest, you see um, uh, that 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 difference. Now, as far as to the the technica technicality of first part, I need to um, relearn this. Uh, I, I've, I've forgotten some of this, but um, they're not collaborating. Uh, they're not vetting. Um, however, there are some essays which appear to have been written to some extent, uh, and that is um, some wrote part of the other. Uh, and then again, there's the the problem that some seem to um, have disputed authors. Okay. John? No, not, nothing, nothing I would add. We could get into some, some, some additional details there. One of the kind of parlor games to go through is to kind of pinpoint kind of particular areas where there's difference of emphasis of, of, of Hamilton and Madison. Mm -hmm. But I'm more struck by, uh, by, by the degree of, of compatibility for the most yeah. part at this point. Now, again, what some other people will do here is, is, is and, and to good effect is, they'll kind of compare Hamilton Madison right here in the Federalist Papers with some of their later writings and see some evolution in, in, in that way and to see exactly when the split took place. And actually also to see one of the classic things, this isn't so much on Federalist One, but on other Federalist Papers, to see, see where there's evolution of Madison's thought on the relation between state and federal governments and federal power. Uh, state pushback. But um, for the most part, I think we, we, we are in solid ground that we introduce the Federalist Papers and speak of Publius as having written them. I think that's, uh, that, 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 that's not an artificial unity that when we use Publius, uh, uh, we're, we're, we're getting a fair understanding of the, of, the, uh, of the compatibility of the authors. I would agree with that. Yeah, I second that. Uh, let's go back to his uh, characterization of his, uh, of his opponents. Uh, I'm struck by this passage. Um, it will be equally forgotten. The vigor, the vigor of government is essential to the security of liberty. 
that in the contemplation of a sound and well-informed judgment, their interests can never be separated, and that a dangerous ambition more often lurks behind the specious mask of zeal for the rights of the people than under the forbidding appearances of zeal for the firmness and efficiency of government. History will teach us that the former has been found a much more certain road to the introduction of despotism. Can either of you or both of you tell me what what he's thinking of here? The examples from history in which uh, in, in which the the real danger to Republican government is coming from those who stand up for the rights of the people rather than for the firmness of government. I don't have any, and, and I'll see. Jeremy might have some more uh, kind of distant historical examples, but I'll I'll take back in the more immediate. Uh, kind of history as I've been inclined to do during this discussion here, and just look at what had been happening from the 1770s and 1780s. And we had some states, Rhode Island oftentimes gets uh, gets featured most prominently, and which is by the design of their government. In Rhode Island at this point, state legislatures were elected every six months. I mean, they, they didn't even have annual terms in some of these places. Uh, so we had two New England states doing this. And so in that kind of situation, there was what we might call an extreme responsiveness of the public officials to the public. And in a situation in which uh, some economic distress, some economic downturns that came up, and you would have people rallying support for, they say, well, the best way we can kind of address your economic concerns is by printing more money or taking some other steps that might sound very good in the spur of the moment and the passion. And yet people knew it's actually probably not a good idea overall. It's probably not in the common interest, the public good. And I'll just take this opportunity. One of the things that strikes me from rereading Federalist One is the confidence with which Hamilton speaks of the common good where he starts off and the truth of the matter. And so Hamilton really believes, as did the other authors of the Federalists, that you could actually tell there's certain things that are just good public policy and in the public interest. And there's other things that are more responsive to the passions of the people, their immediate sense of the people. And what Hamilton is saying here is there will be people who will try to mislead you. He will play off the people's passions in that way. And they will try to say, I'll solve your problem. I can do this personally or I can lead you in ways that are actually unhealthy. And so I think to, to a significant Hamilton is suggesting we actually see some of the seeds of this just in the state governance right now. Jeremy. Yeah, so um, I'm, um, I'll, I'll answer this question in two ways. First is just to re- refer to the conclusion, commencing demagogues and ending tyrants. Um, so, so that that's really the answer. There is that if if you're looking for places in the Federalist Papers where demagoguery is on the mind of Publius, this is one of the great passages. And and the great problem of demagoguery, which which comes out of antiquity, is that um, um, people use uh, a leader will come along uh, and will appeal to the many, to to the people, to uh, bludgeon uh, the few. Um, um, and uh, take power that way, and then it'll usually end up in some sort of uh, pretty bad situation. Um, I don't. I, I never feel comfortable with with my Roman history to, to give really good examples. 
Um, but I know uh, when you read Plutarch, even even Plutarch's account of, of Pericles, for example, this this, this comes out. Um, uh, how how Plutarch calls um, um, Pericles a demagogue. Even this is this is uh, something. That, and and so so that's that's one one way to think of it. Um, again, another history he might have in mind besides antiquity. Uh, and there are all those other passages in the Federalist Papers that also come to mind. Think about um, the criticism of Athens for um, building a statue one day and then decreeing Hemlock the next, or vice versa. Um, and um, had any, every, you know, Athenian been a Socrates, or uh, Athenian assembly still would have been a mob. There's the, there's the concern coming out of antiquity, coming from Plutarch, coming from Thucydides, that one of the great downfalls of uh, rule by the many is the rule by the many on behalf of the many, led by some sort of demagogue. Um, and that's, that's what the passage has in mind. Um, and if somebody wants an example of demagoguery, the best, I think, way to get it in literature would be Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men, which is a, which is a rather serious but and also sympathetic account of demagoguery. I wonder if he might have had Julius Caesar in mind. Who always yeah, I th- that's probably the obvious example. Yeah. 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 Can I just pick uh, up on the demagoguery point just yeah. for a bit there? Because I think it's such it's such, such, so rich that it's stri- it's notable that, that the Federalist one kind of makes uh, takes stock of this problem of demagoguery. And it's related to uh, uh, first of all, it's a problem of demagogues on their own. It's on the mind of the of the authors of the Federalist. In a way that um uh in a way that comes through throughout the Federalist Papers in some particular ways. And again, just the very idea of demagoguery is, 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 is dependent on, first of all, there's the many and the few and somebody who appeals to the many, but it's not just appealing to the many um, on any grounds. It's appealing to the many on grounds other than reason. It's appealing to the many on, 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 on the idea of on their passions or on their immediate reflexive response and not on their deliberative, considered, long-term response. And if there's one thing that comes out through a number of Federalist papers, comes when they're discussing why we're designing the Senate in the way that we are, why we're designing the presidency in such a way to give presidents four-year terms rather than shorter terms, this notion that there's two types of public opinion, one type of public opinion is the immediate, reflexive, sometimes public opinion. And then there's, on the other hand, the more deliberative, long-term directing. There's one theme that I find myself stressing or touching base on in teaching the Federalist Papers throughout. It's that theme because it comes, um, in so, it comes up in so much discussion of the design of institutions. So it's notable that we're already flagging that theme of demagoguery which is related to this broader idea of two different types of public opinion. That the idea here is that sometimes you could just take a public opinion poll and say, so 60% of people are in favor of this, and it might not still be a good idea. In fact, it might be a bad idea, because that might just be the immediate sense of the public. That's one of the things that I find myself coming back to in teaching the Federalist Papers significant amount. Yeah, this is, this is, what, this is what gets me about it. Is that, so there are, there are three types of people. There's Governor Clinton of New York who controls New York and is afraid to lose power. That's Hamilton's expectation. There's Patrick Henry who's hoping for a dissolution of the Union so Henry can start his own Southern Confederacy. Again, that's the way Madison and, and Hamilton think of Henry. And there's Edmund Randolph who, who probably has good intentions. He just wants more time. 
The problem with Hamilton's characterization is that he lops Randolph in with this group with those the other two. Mm. That's interesting. Uh, Tom Roberts asked whether Hamilton might be trying to prove wrong his detractors who have been accusing him of being a closet royalist. Was he being thought of as a closet royalist at this point, or did that come out of his his conflict with Jefferson later? Steve Knott's the person to ask on this, but my impression is that, that no, he's this is not this is not a concern yet. Though remember he had just given that speech, supposedly, according to Madison, in, in June, where he came out for uh, a lifetime president. Yeah. Yeah. John, anything to add on that? No, I would just say that, that, that uh, I mean, what's, what's, what we see coming out here, what, one of the things that Hamilton's stressing in, in Federalist One, and that actually comes up in, in the next few Federalist papers as well, and it might be kind of surprising to us that they have to spend some time on it. And Hamilton even suggests that, you know, you might be surprised I'm going to have to do this. And that is there really was a, a, a need to explain the benefits of a single union. Hamilton says. He said, I'm going to spend some time on that. That could be the first kind of uh, our project here. We're going to actually take up some time in the Federalist Papers doing that. Well, it's helpful for us. First glance, we say, well, how much time do they need to spend on that in that way, to, to, to the need for a union? It's because there really were some folks out there who might not have been fully persuaded of the need for a union. It might, might really have been the case. And it, and it comes back to this in that way as they're closing off Federalist One and Hamilton saying, for nothing can be more evident to those who are able to take an enlarged view of the subject than the alternative of an adoption of the new constitution or a dismemberment of the union. I, I, I take that to be not just um, kind of a clean talk. That is that there really was that, that was seen as a possibility. And so our first task is to persuade uh, a lot of folks here. The union is valuable and it's not the only option on the table. See, that, that's where I wanted to go next. I, 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 when I saw this passage, my reaction was, is, is, is Hamilton being unfair? I mean, is he, is he attributing a, a motive to the critics of the new Constitution that, that, that they really don't have? Now, Jeremy just said a minute ago, this is what Patrick Henry had in mind. But how, how serious were the Anti-Federalists about wanting to break up the Union? different anti-federalists as, as, as Jimmy said and so the question is how many are do we put in each of these categories in that way and then you know what percent of folks are are the folks who would be in the one camp who say look I'd I have some um, I have some amendments that I'd like to suggest I, I'm concerned about a bill of rights I'm concerned about uh, a few changes to the executive branch some changes to the Senate I'd like a larger number of house members I, those that's, that's one set of folks who say let's tweak around the edges in that in that way I think uh, and then how many of these folks are in the other camp of really saying, look, once this fails, we can set up our multiple confederacies. But I think it's also Hamilton could be said to be fair to the situation in this way. Going back to what he launches, the Federalist number one saying is, can we form government based on reflection and choice or not? If we fail in this effort, if we fail in this current venture, might um, who knows what might happen to us, and would that eventually lead to? We might just go kind of go back to our, our kind of other camps, but ten years down the road, 
20 years down the road? Is that not a somewhat likely outcome that we could end up with multiple uh, uh, governments within this the same continent? I think that's that's not outside the realm of possibility to see mm -hmm. that as a possible outcome of failure to approve this constitution. Uh, Jeremy, you have anything to add to that? Yeah, he in the, in the, in the memo that I uh, was uh, mentioning earlier, uh, the, he 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 talks about that very very anxious terms, and, and even floats the, um, the 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 probability of actually rejoining England uh, as as a, as a way to resolve the chaos. Mm -hmm. hmm. okay. um, I've sort of gone through the questions that uh, that I had here. Um, maybe it'd be a good time to just uh, revisit how we started and ask what. Uh, we have here an audience of uh, just under 80, the vast majority of whom I imagine are, uh, are high school or middle school teachers. What's the best argument that you can make for why they should, uh, they should make time in their, in their jam-packed curriculum to, uh, to include Federalist One? All right, so um, the, I'll give two, 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 two uh, um, cases. One is uh, to com if you want to say, how are reasonable people supposed to make this decision by reflection and choice? What is that process going to look like? And compare that with Federalist number 37. Compare it with uh, maybe Edmund Randolph's proposed uh, second convention, the circular letter, or compare it with Federal Farmer 1 or Brutus 1. And Federal Farmer and Brutus are saying, look, take your time. This is really important. Take as long as you need they're going to tell you it's a crisis. Uh, and so you see different models of, of what the debate's supposed to look like. The second plug I'd make for Federalist Number 1, maybe not for teaching purposes, but my favorite thing about Federalist 1 is the third to last paragraph where you get, and it's the, uh, the part in italics, you actually get a table of contents uh, from Hamilton that you never see in an actual table of contents. And so it's a, it's a subject area breakdown. And so for those interested in understanding the Federalist Papers as a work, you can see how Hamilton conceives of the topical divisions in the Federalist Papers. And then they are keyed very closely to transition markers uh, at the respective uh, changes in the, in the text itself. And so you can go through and make an outline of which numbers are the first part of that. I think that's pretty cool. I would pick up here. And somebody actually mentioned this in the in the chat in the comments that are that are in the chat line here. And someone mentioned there. I, I noted that uh, person mentioned teaches this uses Federalist One not only in government and history classes, but I noticed in speech and debate classes as well. The, the person specifically mentioned that, and I could see how someone very much could see Federalist One as uh, as for teaching purposes to set up a discussion on the ratification of the Constitution, on the arguments of the Federalist, and to telegraph the arguments that follow. But I can also see that particular argument, as Jeremy was just saying, about um, a discussion about how should we engage in debate, the possibility of deliberation, mm. possibility of persuasion, the, the, the importance that, that, that something can rest, that something follows from reasoned argumentation, mm. that we can work our way through to an understanding of the common good truth, I'll say it in this context, because there's some other Federalist papers um, that have been read by some other commentators. 
people say, well, when the Federalists speak of the common good or the public interest, what do they mean by that? And some folks have said, well, I think what they mean by that is it's just it's the aggregation of all the particular interests. That's what we mean by the common interest or the public interest. And I, in rereading Federalist One, that seems not to be consistent with what Hamilton is meaning here. He actually means there's something, a common good, a public interest, the truth of the situation and the truth of the matter. And that it's possible to reason our way through, to argue with one another, to deliberate about that, and so that we can arrive at best understanding of the common good. That's an interesting message to uh, to be at least engaging with in a in the common in the current era, in which we're obviously in a very polarized era, in which sometimes people despair of the of the possibility of actually reaching common ground or having a common understanding of the public interest. A rereading of Federalist One suggests that that could well be possible, or at least Hamilton. Uh, was confident that we could reason our way to that. That's one message that um, they, they could at least be engaged with in, in, in rereading federal. All right. Well, are there any, uh, any final statements that either of you would like to make about this document? There's one that I would like to make, and I, I think I've hinted at it before, but I'd like to return to it um, because it's an, it's an issue of particular interest to me, and so I'll take this opportunity. I flagged on several occasions that Hamilton and the other authors of the Federalist Papers are frequently make, making mention of the state governments that are in existence at that point, and particularly the state constitutions that are in effect. In fact, in that italicized portion that Jeremy pointed us to and highlighted in the third to last paragraph, uh, Hamilton specifically says that he's going to engage an analogy to your own state constitution. And that's... I've suggested various ways that I've found it helpful to teach and introduce the Federalist Papers in classes. I've already suggested that I very much like to pair it or if possible with anti-Federalist arguments so that you can see the Federalist response. But the other thing that, that could be done, and again, there's only so much time in the curriculum, is to introduce students to the state constitutions that would be in some ways the precursor to the U.S. Constitution to actually assign the Pennsylvania Constitution one of the most democratic of the constitutions, as they say. And then to, 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 to introduce students to the New York Constitution, which was very different from the Pennsylvania Constitution. It did provide for a more vigorous executive and a more responsive and not just a, a, a responsible and not just responsive public opinion. So the, the final point that I would close with is, is that Hamilton signals to us in Federalist Paper Number 1 the kind of the value of the state constitutions of the time to the debate that was going on between anti-federalists and federalists almost signals to us as teachers the kind of the value of taking note of that and perhaps even assigning some of those state constitutions to give a sense of what the drafters and framers and ratifiers of the U.S. Constitution would have had before them, both to compare in favorable ways, but also to show how they were deviating from that in some ways. All right. Fascinating. Uh, Jeremy, closing thoughts. Yeah, I don't have much to add. I think, I think I've... Uh... I said what I have to say. All right. Well, I want to thank uh, both of our, our panelists, John Dynan and Jeremy Bailey, for their, uh, for their conversation this evening. I also want to thank the participants out there for, uh, for their questions. As a reminder, you will be receiving an email within the next week. That email will include a link for a certificate of, of participation, if that's something you're interested in having. Uh, that link or that email will also contain a link to the archived webinar 
which we hope you will share with your colleagues. Also, please put it out there on social media and get the word out about, uh, about this program. If you have enjoyed this evening's webinar, I hope that you will consider taking an online graduate course in our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. Uh, both Jeremy and John are uh, among the among the, the faculty in that program. I'm chair of that program, so of course that has a special place in my heart. Uh, but you can find more information about uh, about the courses of that program, both online and on campus, as well as all sorts of other resources for teachers at teachingamericanhistory.org. Our next documents in detail webinar will take place on Wednesday, October 23rd. At that time, our topic will be Thomas Jefferson's first inaugural address. Joining me to discuss it that evening will be Dr. Todd Estes of uh, Oakland University and Dr. Robert McDonald of the United States Military Academy at West Point. So we look forward to seeing you back here on October 23rd. Uh, until then, thank you very much and have a wonderful evening. All right. Thanks to both of you. Hey, John, I just saw that we got a chat comment that came in just as you were wrapping up. I think it might have been kind of responsive to me. And the person was saying, particularly, what would you pair with? I was making this case of pairing. The one thing I would say is if you were, if, I don't know if you responded to these chats, but I mean, Patrick Henry's speech in the Virginia ratifying convention might be one of them. I know at the time that might not be exactly Federalist One's not responding to that, but as a good pairing piece among others, that would be just my one comment. Good. Any other suggestions for pairing, Jeremy? Uh, I would, I would, I would go early, uh, and I would go with the. Um, uh, I have to check my dates, and so it's gonna, it's gonna be uh, 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 the Randolph uh, stuff. There's also the Pennsylvania minority stuff, but that's a few days later, I think. Uh, okay. right. When did Sentinel? When did Sentinel uh, kind of write with a Sentinel number one? Would that have been? Would, would that have come out by this point, or would that be coming afterwards? I'll Google it right now. Okay, yeah, I mean that's the one. I mean, I, what I'm doing, Federalist Ten, I'll often kind of pair it in that sense with 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 Sentinel, but yeah, but S Sentinel's out. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. That'd be that'd be another suggestion. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Thanks, guys. Okay. Good. Yeah. Have a good night. Thank yeah. you again. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs, at TAH.org slash webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.